For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Um, thanks for joining us. We are continuing our walk through the book of Ephesians. And this morning we find ourselves in um, Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians. It's kind of the opening Thanksgiving prayer of the letter. Uh, I was planning on, this is like a single paragraph, and I was planning on covering this in a single week. Um, as I dug into it, I realized that there were too many big ideas to try and put into a single week, and so we're actually going to take this week and the next three um, to unpack it. Um, I had to remind myself that we're going to be a church for a long time, and it's all right to slow down and, um, and just kind of dig in a little bit, and that's what we're going to do. So we're going to spend some time in this, and I'm really excited about it because I think um, that that Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is incredibly relevant to us, um, and, and we'll unpack that as we take a look at it. In the year 2000, there was a movie that came out called Memento. Um, some of you may have seen it, um, some of you may not. It's, um, if you're into um, kind of the, the, um, the action but slash like mind-bending type thing, um, great film. Um, and uh, uh, here's the, the, the story is the, the main guy, Guy Pierce, plays um, a character named Leonard Shelby. And, uh, and Leonard um, was in a horrific situation. His wife was brutally killed and he was attacked. And coming out of that attack, he actually lost the ability to form new memories. And so he could remember everything up to the attack. And then from that point forward, he wasn't able to form any new memories. And so his longest that he could remember anything was about 10 or 15 minutes. And so he was continually, continually having to, in a sense, um, relearn who he was, relearn what he was doing and why he was doing it. Um, he, with that short-term memory loss, no ability to create new long-term memories, he was continually forgetting who he was and ultimately having to relearn it. And, and, and as you can guess, that kind of made him um, vulnerable to malicious people. Because as he introduced himself to people and then they discovered that he would reintroduce himself to them and there'd be no memory of their previous interactions, um, there are malicious people that will take advantage of that, manipulate him. And, and um, Anyway, I won't give away much more. If, if you're interested, it's, it's um, an interesting mind-bending movie. But the reason I bring it up is this. I think that's actually a, a great illustration, honestly, for us. I think that's really how most of us go through life. He, he describes his condition as living in the continual state of waking up. You guys know when you're waking up and you're in that space where you're not quite sure what's a dream and what's reality? You're in that weird space where you don't really know. It's like you, you think you know and you're coming out of the confidence of your dream, but then you're kind of waking up to the reality of, and, and you're in that in-between space. He lived there. So how is that compared to us? Well, um, I think honestly, we're continually having to rediscover who we are as followers of Christ. And I'm talking specifically to those who have believed in Jesus, who identify themselves as Christ followers. Those who have believed in Jesus have a new identity in Christ. Um, we were sinners. We were rebels against God, but we have been forgiven because of the work of Jesus. We have been forgiven. We have been adopted into the family of God. Um, Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve to die. And he rose again to new life, um, basically delivering us to a whole new position, a whole new relationship with God. Because he was our substitute in judgment, we can be his brother in blessing. And when we believe in Jesus, we're covered with the very righteousness of Jesus. We're covered with the very identity of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, you, you don't just have a, a different status in the future. You have a different identity now. 
that changes everything about who you are and how you relate to the world. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You, you are uh, before God in a position of unending, unearned, unbreakable grace. His favor just pours out on you in the same way that it pours out on Christ. And our relationship with God ultimately changes the way we approach every other relationship. The problem is that we're continually forgetting who we are in Christ. We live with short-term memory loss. <laughs> we have become followers of Christ, but we continually forget what that actually means. We continually lose sight of, of what a blessing and what a benefit and what a radical message of freedom that is. I mean, you guys know as well as I do how quickly we can fall into just religion. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like when you become a follower of Christ, it's exciting. Like that message of deliverance is, is mind-bending and, 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 and freeing. And you're amazed, like someone like me can be forgiven. Somebody that has, I'm not defined by what I've done. I'm defined by what he's done. I'm not defined by the, the bad things I've done. He paid the price for those bad things. I am now defined by the good things that he's won for me. I stand before God in all the righteousness of Jesus. Not because I've earned it, but because he's earned it for me. That is a radical message of freedom. But the problem is, after you start following Jesus for a little while, it is really easy to kind of fall into religious behavior. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we just go to church. Why? Because it's, that's what religious people do. We just start doing the right things because they seem like they're the right things to do. We start being moral people because we're supposed to be moral people. And, and what ends up happening is we end up living a life disconnected from the awareness of the gospel that makes that life worth living. People who are just living flat-out religious lives with no connection to the gospel are some of the emptiest uh, and often turn out to be some of the bitterest people around. Religion by itself is no answer to the human condition. The gospel is the answer. And we need to be renewed in our awareness of what the gospel means to us. Jared Wilson wrote a book um, called Gospel Wakefulness. Um, Jared's a neat guy. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I recommend you look him up and follow him. He's hilarious. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and he has his favorite sports teams, which makes it fun to interact with him because he gets very passionate about it. But in his book, Gospel Wakefulness, he basically lays out um, this argument that we should be walking in regular daily amazement at the gospel. That, that when we're awake to the reality of the gospel, when we're awake to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done to change who we are and how we do what we do, that wakefulness changes every day, every relationship, every situation, every challenge. That we should be walking in a sense, not forgetful of who we are in Christ, but fully aware of it. And that's kind of what Paul's opening prayer is about. Paul's opening prayer for the Ephesians and for the other churches in the region that were, that were started because there were faithful believers who went out and shared the gospel is that they will have an increasing awareness of how incredible Jesus is and how powerful he is to set us free. Now, the last four weeks, we have spent in chapter one unpacking the gospel. Um, verses 3 through 14. If you, have, if you haven't been with us, I mean, just a very brief summary. 3 through 14, all those verses are a single sentence in the Greek, a single outpouring from Paul that is incredible because what he's doing is basically unpacking the good news of who God is and what he's done for us. That's what the gospel is. It's news of who God is and what he's done for us. And in that sentence, we saw that God the Father has planned to ultimately redeem a rebellious humanity. And God the Son became the hero of that plan. He's the one that, that ultimately laid down his life to win us back. He, he's the one that became the, the, the ultimate sacrifice by, by taking our place in judgment so we could take his place with him in blessing. And God the Spirit is the one that takes the message of that gospel and makes it come to life in our hearts. He's the one that, that opens our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. He's the one that kind of wakes us up and says, this is something you need to see and pay attention to. He is the unseen, um, but very alive and very real <clears throat> presence and power of God. 
If you've ever heard the gospel preached, if you have ever heard somebody talk about Jesus and had your heart stirred in response to it, like, like, like you heard about the incredible love of God demonstrated in a God who would sacrifice his son on your behalf, and you were stirred to respond to that in love and potentially in faith, you need to realize that was the Holy Spirit that did that. It's the Holy Spirit that ultimately draws us. He is the, the unseen hand of God that ultimately draws us and enlightens us. And that's kind of what we unpack, this, this message of the gospel. So, so get this, you guys. When we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about advice on how to live. We're talking about good news on, on how Christ lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose again in our place. It is not advice on how we perform to impress God. It is news of how about, about how Jesus performed to impress God on our behalf. And that when we simply believe the message of the gospel, when we simply rest in who Christ is and what he's done, we're made right with God. Not because we've earned it, but because he has. That's the good news of the gospel. And God, in, in all of his infinite complexity, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's, one what, has eternally had it at his heart to redeem sinful humanity, to take sinners and turn them into saints. It is also his intention, not just to, to redeem us for some future reward, but to change us now. If you're a follower of Christ, um, that same Trinity is, is involved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in, in awakening us to the reality and the beauty of the gospel. Because the gospel, you guys, listen, the gospel is the blessing that unlocks every other blessing. That's what we saw in, in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In other words, every blessing that flows from the person and the work of the Spirit in heavenly places. Every blessing flows from this one. This is the key that unlocks every other blessing in life. The gospel ultimately realigns our relationship with God, which then realigns our relationship with everything else, every other person in life. It is God's solution ultimately, to our every problem. Now, here's the deal, you guys. Those of you who have believed, those of you who are followers of Christ, um, you know you've been blessed. But what you need to realize is that you don't know how much you've been blessed. You really don't. You get it, but you don't get it. And you're like, well, Steve, I've been a follower of Christ for a long, long time. I've really grown. I've really, that's awesome. And as much as you've learned, there's that much more and even more to learn. Why? Because God is infinitely beautiful, infinitely complex, infinitely loving. And the gospel is like this, this, this thing that we just peel, black, peel back, blessing after blessing after blessing. It is something that we continue to discover and rediscover the beauty of because it shows us again and again and again the heart of God how much he loves us. And even though we're sinners and we're broken, we don't deserve anything, God is determined to bless us through his work based on his sacrifice. And Paul is praying in this opening prayer that we would move into a deeper awareness of those blessings, that the Spirit of God would open our heart to a greater and greater degree of how incredible, how beautiful, how freeing the message of the gospel is. Take a look at verses um, 15 and 16. He opens up with um, a prayer of blessing. He says, for this reason, and by that he's referring to everything he's just unpacked, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, has um, planned and worked to redeem us, to take sinners and turn them into saints, if they simply believe. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, because I have heard you've believed the gospel, and that gospel has, in fact, affected you. I've, I've heard that... You're, you've heard how much God loves you, and that's changed the way you love others. I don't cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, just a note here. This doesn't mean that Paul was continually giving thanks on his lips. There are some people that, that um, have prayer techniques, and, and, and some get kind of crazy. Let's just make this reality. What he's, he's not saying that, that his lips never stop moving and giving thanks for the Ephesians. What he's saying is that his heart never stops being in a posture of gratitude. That, that his heart is continually in a posture of gratitude toward God. Okay, what you need to catch is, is Paul's like a proud dad here. Paul spent years investing in these, in these guys. He showed up in Ephesus 
a place rich with, with idolatry and, and, and crazy, crazy spiritual practices of bondage, of people being abused, of, of slavery, uh, uh, of all kinds of just horrible things. And he started sharing the good news of who God was and what he'd done. He had n- countless coffee table discussions where he would sit down across from people and disciple them and share with them who Jesus was and how it impacts their lives. And he spent years doing this there, sharing the gospel with those people. And a church was started in Ephesus. And then out of Ephesus, people would come to Ephesus because it was a huge, sprawling city. It was a metropolis. And people would come to Ephesus, and some of those people would hear the gospel. And they would become believers. And they would carry that, that message with them back to their home communities. And they shared the gospel, and more people became believers. And this letter isn't just to Ephesians. It's actually what we call a circular letter. It's to Ephesus and all the other churches that were started as a result of the church in Ephesus. And what Paul is saying is he's sitting back in wonder with his heart full of gratitude saying, holy cow, look at what the seed of the gospel has done. People's lives are being changed. Sinners are being redeemed and restored through the person and the work of Jesus. And and that fills me with gratitude. There's never a moment that my heart isn't moved to gratitude because of of what Christ has done through um, the effort to to simply preach the gospel. The Spirit of God has brought a rich harvest to the planting of the Word, and and people's lives are being changed because of it. And, And so Paul is basically saying, I give thanks. I never stop being in a posture of gratitude. And from that, he then moves to his request. In a posture of gratitude, he approaches God to make his request. And, and, and we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking some of the titles that he uses because they're significant. Take a look at verse 17. He says, I remember you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, you see the work of the Trinity that he is, in fact, come to a Trinitarian God to bring a singular blessing because at the heart of God is a purpose to bless. And he calls him the Father of Glory. Father of Glory. That title's significant. Um, last week, um, before service, we actually prayed for a buddy of mine, Jonathan McIntosh, who was uh, down in Memphis. They had their two-year church anniversary. It was an outdoor event, huge weather coming in. Um, and, and I opened my prayer by saying, you guys, were going to pray to the God of all weather right? And we prayed to the God of all weather that, that he would, in, act, in fact, enable them to have their service. Good job, you guys, those of you who prayed. God listened. They, it was awesome. I've heard great reports. They actually had their event, and it, was, it went, went off very well. Why did I call him the God of all weather? Because he's the God who controls weather. The reason I'm even praying to him is because he's the one that actually has any ability to influence or control that. He actually can influence the movement of a cloud, He can actually uh, um, bring rain or hold it back. When Paul says, I am praying to the Father of glory, what he's saying is I'm praying not just to God, but to the God who is the Father of all glory. In other words, he's the source of everything that's glorious. Everything that is glorious is simply a reflection of his character, an outgrowth of who he is. God created all things out of himself, and, the, and, and, and anything that has glory is simply a reflection of him. He is the source of all that is praiseworthy. He is the source of all that, that would provoke us to joy and to awe. He, he is all that would, that would fill us with that sense of, of, you ever had that sense of weightiness, of worth, that, that something is glorious. God is the Father of all glory, and, and all glory that we experience in the created order is really just a reflection or an extension of His glory, and it's supposed to be a pointer back to Him. Now, when do we think of glory? A lot of times we think of glory with great accomplishments, right, with, with great achievements. Uh, we are now in the swing of playoff baseball, and I know for some of you that's all you're thinking about right now, so let's just put it on the table and talk about it, okay? Some of you are like, yeah, 12 and 12, that's awesome. I'm not a huge baseball fan. I've got to admit it. I'm, I'm much more of a, a football fan, but how can you not get caught up? Um, you know, we're on the outskirts of Cardinal Nation, and how can you not get caught up in, in kind of the excitement? Some of you are Cubs fans, and you hate this right now. Um, just put up with it. You're going to deal with it. Um, but, but how can you not enter it and think about like last year, you know, 11 and 11, right? You get, what a crazy season, right? How would you, what would it be like to be freeze? You know what I'm saying? 
to hit that homer, to walk off that field. That's glory. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you got all of Cardinal Nation in that moment, like, you're glorious, right? And the fans feel it too. The fans get all caught up in it. And they're like, we're glorious. Why? Because it's this huge accomplishment, right? It's this thing that was tremendously victorious and weighty and heavy and unexpected and wonderful. And, and, and so we get caught up in it, right? So a lot of times we think about glory in connection with great athletic events or great achievements. But I want you to realize that glory, we, we encounter aspects of glory every day, every day. Everything that would provoke in us that, that deep sense of something being praiseworthy or joyful or weighty. I, I'm an outdoors guy. Um, I really enjoy hiking and, and being outside. And this summer I got to go... Uh, when I went out to California to visit some family and, and I went there for a, a conference, I got to hit Yosemite. Haven't been there since I was a little kid. What an amazing place. I mean, you come around the corner and you're just underneath this towering granite wall with beautiful trees and, and, and incredible, the way the sun comes in and the, and, the sh- and, the, and the shade changes. The valley is just different at different times of the day. And you could, I just, like, you just stop. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're just, you just stop. You're like, oh my goodness. Huh, that's incredible. I mean, it just kind of awes you. A beautiful sunset, a beautiful sunrise, that moment when you look across the the beautiful pink-hazed sky and and you have that sense that I should notice this. I should pause and see this. That's glory. Those of you who are parents, your kids, um, there are moments when you look into your kids' eyes. Uh, I remember when, when Victoria, our firstborn, was tiny as a little infant, right? I mean, when they first come out, they're just, I mean, you love them because that's the way God wired you, but really, they're pruny and they're, they're very, you know, they don't interact. They're not very fun to talk to. They're just incredibly needy. Uh, but there comes that moment when they first look into your eyes and their eyes lock on you and they see you and they smile. For a parent, that is a glorious moment. That moment when that little child looks into your eyes and recognizes you. And there is something between you, a joy that passes. That's glorious. Those of you, you, you haven't had kids yet. Um, it happens when you fall in love with somebody, when you deeply value them. That moment when there's this just this tremendous, you just, you ache in your love for someone. And you know you would die for them. There's something weighty about that. Something glorious about that. You guys, all these little things that make us pause and make us catch our breath, these are reflections of the glory of God. They're not the glory itself, but they are reflections of the source. The Father of glory has put His glory in the created order to point us back to Himself. We were created for the glory of God. Let me ask you something, you guys. Why do we even find things glorious? Do you realize that we are the only thing in the created order that does? There's a lot of animals that live in Yosemite Valley. There aren't very many squirrels that at sunrise pause and take in the vista right? And some of you are like, dude, I've seen Disney. You know, that big buck stands on the rock overlooking the valley, taking it in. That's Disney, okay? Not reality. The deer don't notice how beautiful it is. They don't care. We alone in the created order actually have an appreciation for glory. You know why? Because we were actually created in the image of God. We alone in the entire created order were created in the image of God. And having been created in the image of God, we were created to, in fact, engage with God and enjoy God in a way that nothing else in the created order does. We were created for glory. We were created to, to swim in it, to dance in it, to live in it, and for it to be a, a, a source of safety and of joy and of worth. The problem is that we're sinners. That's the central problem. We rebelled against God and, as, and, and, and we committed cosmic treason. And in our place of treason, God's glory was no longer warm and inviting. It was still something we wanted and something we needed, but it was now something that was also uh, threatening. As, as sinners, the glory of God is both attractive and terrifying. We're drawn to it because we were created for it, but we're terrified of it. 
The Bible now describes the glory of God in terms of, of it being a consuming fire, a blinding light. Because it is, it is an expression of God's absolute purity, His absolute holiness. And as those who are not holy, that is a terrifying thing because it will consume us and destroy us. Like kindling, coming into the presence of fire, it simply is, is, is something of an other order. We are no longer glorious in ourselves. And while we're still drawn and need and experience the glory of God, that glory is in fact threatening and alien to us because our sin makes us unworthy. Now, of course, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is that, that Jesus, the glorious one, stepped into our sin and became inglorious and was actually crushed in our place. He bore the penalty of our sin. He, he stepped into our cosmic treason and suffered the penalty and died so that we could be forgiven. And when he rose again to new life, for those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made as right with God as Jesus is right with God. The glory of God is no longer an alien, threatening thing. It goes from a promise that we can never have to an invitation that we will have. Here's the deal, though. We have trained our hearts to look for the glory of God in everything but God. We have trained our hearts to try and get an experience of the glory of God without relationship with God. Why? Because the glory of God was alien to us and threatening. What that means is that we have ultimately all become idolaters. We look to things that aren't God to be God for us. We look to things that um, can't do for us what only God can do, and we look at them and, then we, and we say to those things, do for me what only God can do. We, we turn to our relationships. We turn to our success. We turn to our jobs. We turn to our reputation. We turn to our academic achievements. We, we, turn, to, to, we turn to anything that is a small but beautiful reflection of the glory of God, and we say to that thing, be to us, the, in fact, be for us the glory of God. And it can't because it is simply a reflection. And when we take something that isn't God and we put on it the weight of being God, we crush it and destroy it. It can never meet our, whole, our soul's deepest needs. You guys, even as followers of Christ, we do this because we've trained our hearts to do it. That, that's part of... of our being redeemed, our redemption is completely paid for in the person of Christ, but our experience of that redemption is not fully yet realized. We're in the process of experience to a greater and greater degree the freedom of the gospel. And so he is progressively setting us free from our heart's idolatry. We'll talk more about this in a moment as we unpack some more. So he prays to the Father of glory. That's significant because what he's doing is he's, he's focusing our attention on the fact that God is the source of all that is glorious. He's the one that meets our soul's deepest need for an experience of weightiness and joy and, 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 and all that is truly reflective of God's character. He then prays that God will give a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him in... Um, Verse 17, he prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. There's a little bit of a translation challenge here. Um, the ESV actually uses a lowercase s for spirit. Uh, and this really is a, a, an interpretive challenge because the Holy Spirit um, doesn't have a personal name. It's not because he's not a person. It's because the way he likes to operate. He likes to be in the background doing the work, and then he likes to put the spotlight on Jesus. So he's continually doing the work in the background and then saying, look at Jesus, okay? So I think that when it talks about the Spirit here, I think it's talking about the Holy Spirit. That, that this is what he's saying is, is, Father of glory, send your Spirit to be a Spirit in the title. Be a Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In the same way the title, Father of Glory, spoke to us of the character of God, this title speaks to us of the work and the nature and the, uh, and the character of the Spirit. So what does that mean that He is a Spirit of wisdom? Well, first of all, we all know the value of wisdom, right? Wisdom is, is fundamentally important to life. If you don't have wisdom, you're just going to make a train wreck of yourself, right? There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge are the building blocks that we use 
um, to succeed in life. Wisdom, though, helps us build, <laughs> right? It, it allows us to actually build. It tells us what to build, when to build, how to build, right? Because there's a lot of things you can do with your knowledge, but wisdom is what enables you to have the discretion to actually build something worthwhile. Uh, knowledge will help you make a living. Wisdom enables you to make a life. Two fundamentally different things. And what good is it to make a living if you're not making a life that's worth living? You know what I'm saying? Wisdom is ultimately what enables you to engage life and and actually pursue life in a worthwhile way. So he's the spirit of wisdom. He's the one that gives us that discretion. He's the one that gives us that insight. And he does it through revelation. Revelation is a word that means a revealing or a pulling back to show us something that we do not obviously see. We've talked about that already. The Spirit's job is initially to show us the beauty of Jesus. When we hear the gospel, if our hearts are are stirred in response to that message, that's the Spirit of God pulling back a curtain and basically saying, I'm showing you the beauty of Jesus. The Scripture tells us that we love Him because He first loved us. It's the Spirit of God that enables us to actually see in the cross of Christ the love of God so that our hearts are stirred to actually love Him in response. The Spirit of God continues then to reveal to us things that we do not see because we're blinded by our sin, by our our arrogance, by, by our very limited human perspective. The Spirit comes in and gives us wisdom by giving us a revelation of things that we don't see in and of ourselves. And this wisdom and this revelation are rooted in a knowledge of Him. Catch this, you guys. We're not just talking about theological knowledge, right? We're not talking about somebody sitting down with a three-pound book of systematic theology and walking away with the entire thing memorized. That, that's not spiritual growth. Is that important? Sure. Knowledge about God is, is very important. But it's not the end all. What we're talking about when it talks about the knowledge of Him is not knowing about Him. It's talking about knowing Him. When the Bible talks about knowing somebody, it's always talking about relationship. I mean, think about it. In the garden, Adam knew Eve. What does that mean? That he knew about her? They had a baseball card with her stats? And he could rattle off her measurements? You think that was it? No, it meant that he was intimate with her. He knew her intimately. He was in relationship with her. He, he was, she was revealing herself to him and he was revealing herself to her in a beautiful relationship. What we're talking about here is that the Spirit reveals to us the heart of God. The Spirit invites us into intimacy with God. Not just knowledge about God, but knowledge of God. And that's why he has to enlighten the eyes of our hearts and not just the eyes of our brains. This isn't just about knowing the right information. It's about moving into a right relationship. It's about having not only the right information, but ultimately having our hearts attuned to that information. The information is vital. The truth is absolutely necessary. But what the Spirit does is not just bring us into an intellectual knowledge of the truth, but an experiential relationship with God through that truth. And that's why it's essential that ultimately the Spirit does His job. Um, In verse 18, starting in 17, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Notice that he doesn't just say, having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. He's talking about a progressive experience. See, a lot of people approach the gospel as if it were simply news for unbelievers. You go to church and and the preacher preaches the gospel so that unbelievers can become believers. And then we get down to the deep stuff. And what's the deep stuff? Well, it kind of depends on the church you go to. It might be end times. It might be, you know, who wrote what book in the Old Testament. It might be how many rivets were it. You know, whatever. I mean, people people start getting super esoteric in in, in their specific knowledge of, you guys, the deep deep stuff of the scripture is the gospel. Keller says, and I love this, he says that the gospel is, is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z. A lot of people treat it as if it were the ABCs. This is the milk. The gospel's just the milk, and then we get to the meat. The meat is, is something else. No. The gospel is the milk and the meat. The gospel is shallow enough that, that a small child can play in it safely. It's deep enough that it can drown an elephant. 
It has has layer after layer after layer of beauty, complexity, blessing. As we simply move into a deeper and deeper relationship with God through the person and the work of Jesus, we discover the depths of God. We need our eyes continually enlightened to the reality. We're talking about a progressive enlightenment where we get to see how the gospel impacts our lives to a greater and greater degree so that we don't end up in the junkyard of religion. We don't end up rotting cars that once used to have a vibrant motor that actually took them with meaning and a direction, and now we're just gathering. It's what allows us to walk in gospel wakefulness. It's what allows us to walk without short-term memory erasing. It allows us to walk in the wonder and the awe of who God is and what He's done for us and how revolutionary that is to every decision, every relationship, every minute of every day. That's kind of where we're going over the next three weeks, just to give you a foretaste. Paul's going to go on in this prayer, and he's going to highlight three areas that we need progressive enlightenment. The first is he talks about the hope of our calling. You guys, I don't, we have a hope that blows every other hope out of the water. We have a hope that is so revolutionary, it is better than any other hope. We just forget it. <laughs> we don't realize it. We don't see it for what it is. So we're going to talk about that. What does it mean to have this incredible hope that changes the way we hope for anything else in life? We also have an incredible mission, an incredible purpose for life. That's the second thing he talks about. And we're going to talk about how we need the Spirit of God to give us a progressive enlightenment, a progressive experience of that mission so that we can see that life is way more than just living day to day. Way more than earning money. Way more than achieving temporal accomplishments. It has eternal value with an eternal purpose. So we're going to talk about how that revolutionizes and changes our our lives. We're also going to finally talk about the power that is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus. Honestly, most of us walk around (laughs) like orphans. We've been adopted by the Most High. We are children of God. And the resurrection was not just an abstract event in history. It is a present reality in the sense that that same power, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now indwells the believer and transforms our lives and delivers us. We're going to talk about that. That's kind of where we're going this week. But in in order for us to go there, there's one final thing I want to hit. And that's this key word, repentance. Repentance is not a very popular word. It's kind of a downer in um, Christian circles because most of us, when we talk about repentance, we, we kind of, it's associated with shame. It's associated with guilt. It's associated with not measuring up. And, and it is associated with all those things because repentance ultimately is, is our being um, moved to be fully honest with our brokenness, with our shame, with our sin, and to come into the presence of God. But here's the thing. I think a lot of people mix up repentance with penance. Do you know the difference? Penance is this idea that we have to somehow pay for our sin. Penance is this idea that, that somehow I have to do something to make it right. We, we see people do this. I'll have a conversation with somebody. And they're like, man, I've got to get back in church. Why? Well, I haven't been living my life very long, and I'm just, I'm just not a very good Christian. And what they think is, is if I start doing religious behavior, God will like me more. If, if I start going to church, then, then God will be more pleased with me. Right? Some people are like, oh, man, I've been really lousy in my Christian life lately. I need to start having my, my daily devotionals. And what they mean by that is not I need to read the Word of God because I delight in the God of the Word. What they mean is I need to start putting in my time with the Bible so God will like me more. God doesn't like me very much because I'm not putting in my time with the Bible. I'm not putting in my time with prayer. I'm not putting in... See, penance is this idea that, that we earn the favor of God, and that is radically anti-gospel. The gospel tells us we are fully, completely, and totally accepted by God because Christ earned that acceptance. We are, as followers of Christ, never outside of the acceptance of God. We're never outside of the delight of God. Why? Because we're in Christ, and Christ has fully earned the delight of God on our behalf. We don't earn the favor of God. We simply re-engage our hearts with the favor of God. We don't work to earn it. We work because we already have it. 
See, penance is, is an unbiblical idea that influences a lot of our behavior, but, but that's not the gospel, and that's not repentance. What's repentance then? Well, the Greek word for repentance is metanoeo, and it means literally to change one's mind. See, a lot of people will, will hear preachers say, repentance is when you make a U-turn. You are going one direction, you start going the other direction. And what he means by that is you are doing one behavior, and you realize that behavior is a sin, so I'm going to start doing a different behavior. I'm going to turn around from my sinful path and go to my right path. That's not repentance either, you guys. That's a fruit of repentance. That's not repentance itself. Why do I say that? Because the heart of repentance is that what you believe, not what you do. Repentance isn't primarily about changing your behavior. It's repenting. Why do you do what you do? You do what you do because you believe there's going to be a benefit from it. If you are pursuing a lie, you believe, or excuse me, if you're pursuing a sin, it's because you believe a lie. You believe that that thing that you're pursuing is going to do for you what only God can do, is going to give you what only God can give. That's a lie. Repentance is when God shows that to you and you're like, holy cow, that thing that I'm pursuing is not true. This is true, that Christ is beautiful, that Christ satisfies it. See, repentance begins, first of all, with an adjustment of our faith. When we believe the gospel in place of the lie, it then changes our behavior. Our behavior is always an outgrowth of our faith. So the gospel comes in, the Spirit comes in and confronts our belief system and challenges us to reject the lie and believe the truth. That's repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. That's why Luther said all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance. All of life is this continual realignment of rejecting the lie and embracing the truth. Rejecting what what I was using in place of God to instead worship God. All of life is repentance. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be incredibly hard. And that's why we need the Spirit of God to give us the gift of repentance. You know why? Because we love our idols. Our idols aren't just things that, oh yeah, well, it's convenient. We love our idols. And we will continually seek to replace God with them. I love, I'm going to show this, you this verse. I love this because it kind of gives us God's perspective on the very thing we're talking about. This is from Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods? It's talking about the nation of Israel. God is speaking to the nation of Israel and he's saying to them, uh, what's going on here, you guys? Has a nation changed its gods, even though there are no gods? Have you replaced the true God for an idol? But my people have changed their glory, God himself, for that which doesn't profit an idol. Listen to this response. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying here? What he's saying is, you guys are stupid. Do you realize how dumb that is? You have God, the source of true glory, and you're going to replace him with that? An image that, that, that can't give you anything? Are you, be appalled. Be shocked, oh heavens, that, that humans would turn away from the source of life and go to the imitation of life and say, you're the real thing. How dumb. When you see it from God's perspective, it is the most incredible act of idiocy. Only a deluded, deceived, self-destructive person would ever do that. Only somebody who was drunk in their sin, deceived by their idol, enslaved to a vision of life that robbed them from the ability of approaching God would ever do that. And that's all of which is why we need the Spirit of God to deliver us from it. It is appalling. It is crazy. He goes on. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All right, for us to understand this metaphor, we need to understand a little bit about water in the Middle East. This is a desert um, climate, and they had three ways to actually collect their water. The first was by, during the rainy season, there would actually be rivers 
There would be creeks. These, these, these rains would come down from the hills and supply them with fresh water. This was called living water. It was fresh. It was healthy. It was the best source of water. The problem was they also have dry seasons. And so during dry seasons, when the living water dried up, when the fresh flowing water dried up, there would be pools. And pools were, were a good place to gather water. Not as good as the fresh water, the living water flowing from the mountain, but, but good places. There was a third place to collect water, and that was in cisterns. When they got to the height of the dry season, uh, these pools themselves would even dry up. Cisterns were these things that they would dig out to collect water for the, the dry season. They would dig out holes and they would line um, those holes with, with dried mud to create basically a huge pot to collect water. And, and this was kind of like the last choice, you guys. I mean, this is where mosquito larvae breeds. This is where, this is the least desirable of the sources of water. This is, this, it's still a source of water, but it's the least desirable. When you have fresh living water, you're going to go stick your head in a cistern and drink there? Uh, really? How stupid. How idiotic. But, but the irony gets worse. These aren't just cisterns. They're broken cisterns, which means there's a crack in the lining, which means they're constantly leaking. You keep going back to a cistern that doesn't give you even what you, I mean, doesn't even give you stale, nasty water. What a beautiful description. I mean, this is an incredible description, you guys, of how sin works. If you've ever been addicted to anything, you know this experience. You go, and the first time you drink it, it's like, oh, there's water. The next time you go, there's a little less water. Pretty soon, you keep going back. It, it, the law of idols is the law of diminishing returns. Like, there may be joy in your first encounter. There may be maybe some, some payback. But the payback you get from your idols is always diminishing. It's always less and less and less as the cistern leaks. And, and anyone who has struggled with, with, with um, addiction knows this. I mean, pretty soon you're desperate to have any kind of positive experience from the thing that you're addicted to, but you keep going back to it. Why? Because at one time it gave you water. And so it drives you into deeper and deeper depravity, deeper and deeper addiction, deeper and deeper self-destruction. Do you see the idiocy from God's perspective? The gospel gives you an opportunity to come back to the flowing water, the living water, an experience of the outpouring of the genuine glory of God. And yet our hearts keep turning us back to our cisterns, our broken cisterns, our stale water, those things that are just a reflection of the glory of God and cannot meet now, here's the deal, you guys. We're not just talking about an intellectual activity. If it were, it would be a whole lot easier. We're talking about something that's on a very deep heart level. We love our idols because we think they give us life. We really do. At one time, we had a desperate need, and we turned to that cistern, and it seemed to meet that need. And then after that, man, we protect that cistern. I mean, think about it. You're a guy that, that has found success at work, Right? People know your name. You walk down the, the, you walk in, people know who you are. You have a special parking spot. You have, a, you have a nameplate on your desk and on your door. You have letterhead and cards. Now, that may seem silly, but some of these guys, I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That meets a very deep need, like, I'm significant. Someone told me at one time I would never measure up. Look at this. I have a corner office. I have a nice car. I have money. I have people that want to be me. That meets a very deep need in our souls, a need for significance. But do you understand that that is a broken cistern? That's an idol. That need for significance, if you're having it fed through what people tell you, at first it feels really good. At first it's really rewarding. And then it's less and less and less so. And you become more and more desperate to have people try to meet this really deep need. And you end up, here's the deal. When you take the weight of God's glory, and you try and put it on something that isn't God, it ends up crushing it and destroying it. You end up losing all the joy of your success because you're looking to your success to be God, and it can't. It will never satisfy you at that deep level. It will never meet you at that de deep need, and it will leave you destitute, broken, hurting. You know how many guys have destroyed their families pursuing the idol of success? 
thinking that someday, someday, their deepest need to feel important and feel like a man will be met. And it's not. It's a broken sister. See, the gospel's a lot better because the gospel tells you you're significant because you're in Christ. You're significant because you're a son. You're a daughter of the Most High. You've been adopted into the royal family. You are significant because Christ is significant. And since Christ is significant and you're in Him, you're valuable. You're loved. You're worthwhile. And here's the rub, you guys. We love our idols. See, that message seems incredibly threatening. When you've built your life, one of the props of your life is your personal success. And the Word of God comes along and says that prop is a lie. To pull that prop out feels incredibly dangerous. And it can really hurt because that holds up part of our identity. You pull that prop out and things start cracking. And that's why it takes faith. We have to trust the God who is inviting us. When he says to us, that prop isn't supporting you, it's hurting you. We have to have enough faith to say, I believe you. And what you give me is better than what the idol gives me. I will turn, I will reject. Building a kingdom to my own name and I will let you be the king of your kingdom. I won't try to be the center of my own universe. I will recognize that you are the center and that I revolve around you. And I am significant, not because of who I am, but because of who you are. Do you see how that changes everything? You have the same job. You have the same corner office. You do the same work, but it completely changes your motivation for engaging your work. It moves you into freedom instead of into slavery. Repentance is a gift. It can be a hard gift. Because we are obstinate, blind, arrogant people who love our idols. But we have a determined God who loves us enough not to be offended at our rejection of Him, not not to be personally repulsed by our determination to keep going back to our cisterns. He loves us enough to keep waking us up and saying, I am better. Stop looking for benefits without relationship. Love me because I first loved you. Love me because I first loved you. It's a gift that comes from an incredibly beautiful and humble God. And while it is painful sometimes at first, it always ends in joy.